0: Happiest of holidays to those who celebrate. Welcome to Back to Ashes. My name is Phoenix. If you would like to learn how to become a member of Back to Ashes or would like to buy me a coffee as a special thank you, those links can be found down below. If you are new here and enjoy what you are hearing, or you've been here and haven't done so already, please don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and comment. Not only does it help this channel out, but it also reminds you of every time I drop a video. With all of that being said, it is time to quiet down for the fat man himself comes tonight. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab your snacks, or tuck in and get warm, and come join me around the fire as I give you this dose of Melatonin entitled Horrific Christmas Stories. As soon as we are done here, you can return back to the ashes, because when we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and a happier person in the morning. Right after this intro, an ad will play. I'll read the first story and ad will play, and after that, there will be no more ads within this video. Let's get started, shall we? I'm not sure if this is a paranormal experience, but about an hour ago, I was driving my grandparents' four-wheeler on their property, taking my younger cousin. In the middle of their property, there is a Pioneer Cemetery. They don't legally own it, but they own all around it. Anyway, we were coming back to the house, and as we passed the cemetery, I heard a very distinct bell, similar to a bike bell. I asked my younger cousin, and he said he also heard it. We looked around, and there was no one around, and the house was too far to hear yelling, let alone a bell. We went back and looked at the graves to see if any of them had died around Christmas, though none of them were marked Though, so. However, many are unreadable, and some have just years. Very strange, I can't explain what that sound came from. When I was maybe four, we went to spend Christmas Eve at my uncle's house in Wales. We had a big dinner, a pheasant with all the trimmings. I specifically remember having Brussels sprouts that were very bitter. That night at around 3am, we were awakened by a bright flash that filled the whole house and a plate rattling shutter. I mean, every room in the house lit up like a brilliant blue light that left us all awake and near-blinded for a good few seconds, like a camera flash went off inches from each of our faces at the same time. Meanwhile, Bracken, that's my uncle's Irish setter, starts going insane in the living room, tearing around the place, knocking over end tables and barking at just about anything that was good for barking at. My uncle got the dog calmed down, and everyone finally got resettled. But I remember asking my mom what just happened, and she simply didn't have a good answer for me. Ball lightning? Some sort of piezoelectric discharge from minerals beneath the house? Who knows? Ah, who am I kidding? It was Santa, I'm sure of it. When I was 13 or 14 years old, I was passing a football on Christmas Eve with a friend outside. My family used to always have a Christmas Eve party on New Year's, so me and my buddy thought we'd go out front and toss the ball around and get some air. It was great weather, slightly snowing, cloudy sky reflecting the city lights, and it was pretty warm out, I remember, all that being very pleasant. As we were passing the ball around, the whole street or as far as either of us could see flashed white several times, meaning more times than the camera could have. It was also much brighter. We both thought that that was super weird. We looked around and couldn't figure it out or what it could have been. I joked aliens, but we went back inside to ask if anyone had taken pictures and nobody had. We were also the only people on the block having a party that year. Never did figure that one out. Anyone else experienced that kind of thing before? Ten years ago, I, I was 16 at the time, now 26, had eaten a lot at Burger King on the four-hour journey to my grandparents' house. When we arrived to see my nan, it was Christmas Eve, and, as I still do now when I get excited or happy, I jumped around the house, which, combined with the Burger King lunch, unfortunately made me really queasy. This was a sadder Christmas than usual, as my grandpa had passed away earlier that year from Alzheimer's disease, but my family was determined to let my nan's mood with a fun and loving Christmas. Now, onto the spooky bit. I decided to sleep off the self-inflicted nausea whilst my family took my nan to a local fish and chip restaurant, leaving me on my own in the bungalow my nan and grandpa built themselves. I was woken up by the sound of loud music. It was a Nat King Cole song, which is my nan's favorite artist. Being sleepy and not thinking straight, I asked my grandpa to switch it off. Immediately, the music stopped. This made me wake up properly, as of course my grandpa had passed away. Tentatively, with my heart racing, I left the bedroom and shouted to see if the rest of the family had gotten home, but they hadn't. I was still alone. I went into the living room and saw that my grandpa's stereo system, he loved technology, had a Nat King Cole CD inside, so I unplugged the stereo and went back to bed. It wasn't long after falling into an uneasy sleep that the Nat King Cole music blared out even louder. It was so loud it was reverberating around the bungalow, and I started to cry, feeling freaked out. I yelled, Grandpa, please turn it off. I don't feel well. The music stopped. I didn't want to get up again, so I stayed awake until my family came back about half an hour later. After telling my mom, she checked the stereo, and sure enough, it was unplugged. Since then, my nan's dementia has gotten worse, and she often forgets about my grandpa, remembering only about a handsome, kind man and stroking his photo for comfort. The stereo still comes on loudly, usually when she's being difficult to care for or unpleasant, a horrible side effect of dementia, and it calms her immediately. We all think it's our grandpa in his own sweet way, saying as he used to, ''Don't worry, my pet. It's all going to be all right.'' I personally have no recollection of this event. This was told to me by my mother and was confirmed by my father, who was the most non-spiritual paranormal person I have ever met. You don't want to talk about ghosts with him. He is strictly scientific, and if one doesn't provide a DNA sample, then it doesn't exist. So, during the Christmas holiday years ago, and it might have been shortly before or after Christmas. My parents were sleeping in their bedroom. Sometime in the early morning hours, they awoke and noticed that the room where my crib was, where I slept, was illuminated with a bright white light. They immediately thought that a burglar or someone had entered the home, so both my parents jumped out of bed and ran into the hallway outside of my crib room. Before they could enter my crib room, a ball of bright white light exited the room and went into the hallway. Instead of panicking or being frightened, they both said when the light came out of the crib room, they felt the most peaceful sense of well-being and happiness. All the fear they initially felt had vanished and they just stood there watching this ball of light. Not moving, they watched the ball of light float out of my crib room through the hallway, and then down the stairs, where it disappeared around a corner, into the living room. My parents hurried down the stairs to see where the ball of light went, but it was gone. However, once they were downstairs, in the living room, they saw that the angel ornament on top of the Christmas tree had been knocked over. I have asked if there was a window open in my bedroom, thinking it might be a lightning ball, and they said no, However, I wonder how good memories are about particular details years later, when I remembered. My mother says she believes it to be an angel, and my father says he doesn't know what it was, but that it was an incredible, unexplainable experience. If my mother had told me this, I would kind of wonder if it actually happened, but that my father confirms the story, and knowing how he thinks, I had to believe their account. Whether it was an angel, I doubt that because I don't believe in angels, as described in the Bible. Nevertheless, I find that the sudden change in feeling to be extremely intriguing. If I were to see a ball of light, a very large ball, and it was in the room of my child, I would probably freak out, but my parents went from being panicked to being utterly at peace. I don't know what that was and have not been able to find similar accounts, but would love any links or hear comparable experiences regarding this ball of light. About 30 years ago, my ex-boyfriend, his two friends, and my brother and I went on a night hike. This place is an old abandoned amusement park off the side of a mountain with access up to the mountain from the amusement park location. This place is quite well known to the locals and some smart people hike there in the day. I have video of me exploring the amusement park itself with my very brave Boston Terrier. If anyone would like to see it and get a better idea. My ex-boyfriend had this photo that he asked his friend to send to him. At first glance, I assumed his friend photoshopped the picture. Anyways, please excuse any of my grammatical mistakes. I live in a pretty cold state as we all bundled up and headed up to the torn asphalt towards the amusement park. I still remember the air feeling quite still. There was a snowstorm predicted to happen on Christmas Day, so the air had this creepy stillness to it which made it a lot more exciting. As we headed up the grassy hill, passing the amusement park and towards the mountain things, were getting a little tense. My ex-boyfriend, who was my ex for very specific reasons, brought along his beloved PBRs. The higher we got up the hillside of the mountain, the drunker he got. When we finally reached the top, they came across a radio tower. This excited my ex and my brother because for some reason, they found the need to climb it. I started panicking and told them to get down. At this point, it started misting out. It seemed like the start of the storm. The air was electrifying, and I was extremely anxious. I realized I couldn't change their minds, so I decided to walk away. I couldn't stand the idea of seeing my brother plummet to the ground or get electrocuted. I walked away and towards the tree line. I walked until I reached the side of the rocky cliff. It was way more comforting to be alone, even in the darkness. I stood there enjoying the view of the many streetlights twinkling down below. I remember taking deep breaths and just feeling a lot less anxious. That view is always beautiful during the day, but at night it's a whole new experience. It was great until my ex and the whole crew came to join me. Except their idea of joining me was to hang off the side of the cliff, like literally cliffhanger style. Maybe they were inspired by those parkour videos? This set me off, especially since my ex-peer pressured my brother into doing it. I decided to raise my voice and demand for them to stop. My ex found a small ledge off the side of the cliff to stand on. He yelled at me, Come here, right now. You need to see this. I looked over the side and saw the descent our bodies would have to travel to until finally reaching rock bottom. He just kept pushing me to stand on the small ledge. After some time, stupid past version of me decided to give in. I inched my way down the ledge. He told me to turn around and look at the view. I felt like I wanted to cry. He said, isn't it beautiful? I thought about the plummet. That's all. I wanted to climb back up to safety. I felt dizzy like the world around me was spinning. Finally, I climbed back up. My ex-boyfriend's foot slipped in front of me, and I surely thought that's when it was all over. He was able to catch himself, and I was just hyperventilating. I started to ball my eyes out. They couldn't stop playing cliffhanger. My ex yelled at me and claimed I was crying in order to get attention from his two friends. This angered me. I tried to explain myself, but he wouldn't listen. I was afraid for our freaking lives. I was extremely shaken up and so angry I decided to speed walk away from that crazy mental abuse. I walked and didn't look back. I made my way through the brush and down the grassy hillside. I walked until I couldn't hear the ridicule from my ex or his criticizing laughter. When finally I was all alone, by myself with my overreactive thoughts, with no light but just the moon above me, as well as a dead phone. After about 20 minutes of walking, I started to reach the bottom of the hill. The abandoned amusement park buildings were to the left of me, and I had a clear view of the street in front of me. About a football field away, I noticed something that stopped me in my tracks. I noticed a glowing figure made up of light almost floating up the street and towards the amusement park. The figure was not car lights because the gates of the amusement park were locked up. This was way far from civilization to be any illuminating light. It was a figure and a very tall one, about half the size of the trees around it. The figure illuminated the trees around it too. It had massive wings. I distinctly saw what I saw, and as soon as I saw it, I crouched down in a ball with my head between my knees and cradled my head with my arms. And I just wept. I was extremely scared and alone with no phone juice. I was afraid this being would have seen me, or something. I was just way too afraid to look up. I just sat there quietly sobbing and waited to hear something. When, after probably ten minutes, I heard my boyfriend singing his stupid drunken songs from a distance. When they saw me crying, he automatically assumed I was still upset But, when I explained what I had seen, they surprisingly believed me. We stood there, staring out into the distance, and finally decided to continue walking. Well, after he realized he lost the knife he had on his person, he decided to run up the hill to find it. Then he ran down the hill after realizing it was no use and ended up tumbling down the hill and hit quite a few rocks on his way down. Interesting night. We made it back to my car. But for days, I got very little sleep wondering exactly what I had seen. In my mind, I'm pretty sure what I saw was what others call a ghost of Christmas past. So, this happened about four or five years ago when I was around 15 years old. It was early Christmas morning, and my sister and her boyfriend had just come over. They were in the kitchen socializing, drinking coffee or tea, maybe snacking on some stocking stuffers. Typical behavior for us to do before opening presents. Now, before I say exactly what happened to me, I think I should sort of describe the general layout of the house, so you can get an idea. When you first come in the front door, there's a short hallway that goes straight before you're met with the kitchen. If you continue through the kitchen in a straight line, you'll walk into the dining room. Then, when you take a left, there's some stairs and the living room. Note, the dining room was mostly empty as we had the dining table actually inside the kitchen. So, we set up the tree and presence in the dining room instead of the living room. Anyways, I was patiently waiting to start opening gifts. I pulled up a chair to the tree and sat there for a while with my back turned to the kitchen, while my family was behind me still talking, etc. I was sitting there and all of a sudden I heard what I can only describe as a demon or devil voice whisper in my ear. The reason I describe it as such is because I don't know what else to call it. I don't think it was actually the devil itself whispering in my ear, but saying that also gives you a better understanding of what exactly it sounded like. If you've ever played video games, watched movies, or shows where there's a devil or demon character, then imagine what its voice sounded like. It was a typical very deep bass voice with a hint of distortion or slight lisp. What it said, I don't know. It just sounded like gibberish to me. It lasted about three solid seconds. It gave me goosebumps at first, but only because I was startled. It was right directly in my ear, as if I was listening to some ASMR. I started giggling and swatted at my ear as I turned around and looked at my family. As I was halfway turned around, they all stopped and looked at me, wondering what I was laughing at. I've seen all their expressions turn from smiling to questionable and then to a straight face in a matter of seconds. They said that my whole face turned a pale white when I realized no one was behind me. I kind of stuttered and asked who was behind me playing noises and they said that no one was. I thought of the possibility that it was just a joke or prank but I'm pretty certain it wasn't. Number one, the kitchen was about 15 feet behind me, and between that time that the noise stopped and I turned around, there's no way someone could have ran from me to the kitchen, got into the position they were in, then acted oblivious. Also, the floor squeaks and the room's hutch would shake if you were to run that fast across it. Number two, that sort of prank is extremely random and wouldn't have made any sense at least not for anyone of my family to do. I know most pranks are random, but it seems so out of the blue that even if someone could pull it off, just why? I wasn't acting scared or paranoid about anything paranormal the past few days before then, so it would be completely strange to think of that. Another thing is no one in my family plays many jokes in general, and if they are, it's mainly just verbal ones not physical ones. Since I was a kid till now, I've been a firm believer in the paranormal, spirits, and afterlife. I don't follow any specific religion. I just believe that there are good and bad spirits and that there could be a devil or God, but I try and stay optimistic. My old house used to seem really haunted and have strange things happen to everyone who lived there. Sometimes extreme things, but this happened at our new house, and we lived here since I was around 10. Nothing else like that has ever happened here. To this day, I have no idea of what it could have been. I'm sorry for the super long post and details, when really the experience was rather quick, to the point. It's my first story that I've ever shared with anyone, and I wanted to give you a story and try and help you understand exactly what happened the best I could. If something like this has happened to you, what do you think it could have been? Hello. I wanted to share a story of what happened to me on a trip to my grandparents around Christmas time, and what I believe was 2015— This is something that has never happened since then, and never really happened to that extent before then. I never spent the night at my grandparents' house, very often growing up. They had a really neat ranch, and I always hated the feeling of being in the dark there, but that was it, mostly. After my parents moved far away from them, things changed and I spend a day or two before and a day or two after Christmas at their house. My grandmother collected lots and lots of antiques after she got married, and her house was full of them, so it was a really cool place. Things became different when we made this shift to staying at my grandparents' house a few days every year. There was this feeling of rules that I got from the house, or maybe I learned them. Had to be in my bedroom that I always stayed in by 11 p.m., otherwise, a feeling would well up around me. It started low and slow and would ratchet up with intensity. It would hit me even going to the bathroom and back to the bedroom. It was like an incredible and dreadful feeling of being watched all over, combined with a silent screaming that I couldn't hear that would slowly get louder. At 2 a.m., and any time after that, the feeling or entity was totally gone, and I could peacefully use the bathroom, etc. So, one trip, I decided to ignore it. I told my parents about the weirdness and what I'd felt, and they told me it was all in my imagination. I was a young man who'd graduate college, so I felt really mature and a big brain. Everyone else went to bed, and I remember sitting on a Lazy Boy chair, watching Full Metal Jacket on the TV. It was 11, so I was a little aware, but I just turned on all the lights. I had a really hard time focusing on the movie. I started to feel like I was being watched. I'd look towards the areas where my brain was suggesting the attention was coming from, but there was nothing there. It continued to get worse and worse like a heavy weight bearing down on me and freaking me out to the point that I grabbed the remote to turn the TV off when suddenly the feeling stopped. I was totally comfortable and thought that I had faced my fear. About 20 minutes later, a painting on the wall suddenly shifted. I was very startled as the painting was very large and it made a thud sound. A second later, the couch from it shifted away from the wall about an inch. The couch was a huge antique thing that I couldn't have moved by myself. Suddenly, the intensity of eyes on me and the silent screaming was turned up to 11, and I remember turning off the TV, lights, and running to my bedroom. However, it somehow felt even worse in the bedroom, like I was being pulled by a weak Forced to the closet in the bedroom. I felt sick and I remember crying. I fought the urge and pulling and retreated to the bathroom. I closed the door and locked it. I sat on the floor by the shower opposite the door and watched the door, trembling. I thought about crying for help, but my parents had made me feel so bad about the things that I told them before that I knew I couldn’t tell them anything. Everything again calmed for a minute, and I got on my knees. I watched a pencil roll off the bathroom counter and under the door. I watched it roll down the hallway under the floor in my bedroom. I closed the bathroom door and waited. I remembered I had my phone, so I looked at the time. It was 30 minutes to 2 a.m. I waited on the floor, and when 2 a.m. came, I felt the grip fully go and felt safe again. I opened the door to my bedroom and for some reason felt totally safe and able to sleep in my bed. I climbed into the bed and slept, exhausted but feeling totally safe. The next morning I woke up and went into the living room. My parents and grandparents asked me about the couch and painting, and after explaining, I had no idea. I helped them put everything back right. After breakfast, I opened my closet door. I saw a few very startling things in it. I saw a shotgun with bullets and access up into the dark attic with the hatch fully open. I had never been or slept in that room since. My question is this, everyone. What in the heck do you think that was, and what are your impressions? My grandma died when I was very young. It affected me deeply because she had been watching me at the time while my mom was out. She died in front of me, and I reacted as best that I could being a child. I went to my aunt and uncle's house, who lived just behind me. All I knew was that something was wrong with grandma because she'd fallen down the stairs. The EMTs came after they called 911, but nothing could be done. She had passed. For the longest time, I had trouble dealing with it. I spent the longest time blaming myself and hurting deeply over it. This has been the most traumatic experience in my life. Shortly after she died, we moved into the home she lived in to take care of my great grandma. Though with time, it has healed as best as it can. The one thing I do think about when I think of my grandma is Christmas. If there was ever a truer person that embodied love and the spirit of the season, it was my grandma. She would gather all my relatives, aunts, uncles, and cousins to her house for a holiday feast and gathering together from far and near. Because my grandma was pretty much the matriarch of the family, The entire glue that was our family was held together by her hands, not to mention her food. If there's one thing she could do well, it was cook. But her expertise, I think, was baking. I have fond and vivid memories of gathering apples from the apple tree in the backyard for her, where she would bake pies, crisps, and whatever else she could do with them. Though her cookies were the best, I loved my grandma's cookies, and she made the best chocolate chip in the world. I staked my life on it, and I remember her kitchen always being filled with the most wonderful smells imaginable. I recall a time during the holiday season when I was really missing her. It had been many, many years since she had passed, and I was still trying to come to grips with her dying when I was so young. I was sitting in my bedroom thinking about it and talking to her in my head. I was feeling rather upset over it, really. I miss you, Grandma. It was the thought in my head that came, and shortly after it did, there was a loud sound in the kitchen. The sound was a clash of pots and pans, almost like someone was getting them out and tossing them onto the countertops. We had cats at the time, so I assumed they were being ornery and had knocked things over. So I went into the kitchen to investigate. There was nothing, not a cupboard open, or anything strewn about, nor was there a pot or pan out of place, as well as nothing at all on the countertops themselves. It was confusing to say the least. I shrugged it off as an odd occurrence and went back to my room. Though it was then that the whole house filled with the most pungent and wonderful smell of someone baking. Not just the kitchen, but the entire house itself permeated with what smelt like a mix of brownies and cookies being made. My heart was strangely warmed by it and I'd forgotten about being sad. Though it dawned on me that it wasn't just a weird occurrence. I am convinced that it was my grandmother coming back to comfort me, let me know she was still around, and tell me she loved me in the best way she knew how. The story doesn't end on that note, however. When my mom came home from work that day, as soon as she walked through the door, she said, "'It smells like somebody's been baking in here.'" Merry Christmas, Grandma. It all started with a John Doe. He had come in by ambulance at about midnight on Christmas Eve after being found in an alley by a patrolman. He got there before I did and sat there for most of the day, just taking up a slab I remember feeling sorry for the corpse. Was there someone out there wondering where he was, and why he had never come home? The police were baffled, and no one was really sure who he was or how he died. Poison was suspected, but the coroner wasn't in that day, and we were really just minding the shop until he came back on the 26th. I was mostly just trying to make it until 6 p.m. so that I could sign off to the night receptionist and head home. It was Christmas Eve, and I really wanted to get home, put on my PJs, and enjoy my evening. We only had one visitor that day, and he was easily the strangest person I'd ever seen. He came bustling in at around noon, a middle-aged guy in dark clothes, and an honest-to-God traveling cloak. When I saw him, I thought to myself that there must be some kind of Harry Potter thing going on in town. The guy looked like an extra in one of the movies, and not one of the extras you want to get to know. The guy just screamed, Death Eater, at the top of his lungs. And when he saw me, he made a beeline for the desk as he flashed his best shark's grin. The eyes that hung above that smile, however, were the most intense eyes I had ever seen. They looked like pools of green that danced like a lake of ice. A lake that held monsters beneath the surface. Excuse me, miss. I'm wondering if you've had any John Does come in today. I told him I'd be happy to take a look and ask him if he could tell me about the body he was looking for. Oh, late thirties, dark hair, probably dressed in jeans and a plaid shirt. I was instantly suspicious because it sounded like he was describing the body I had been wondering about all day. I asked for ID and proof of his relationship to the deceased, but he seemed unable to produce either. He said his brother hadn't come home last night and someone had told him about the police taking a body that had been found near their apartment, which had brought him here, to check on it. I hope it's not him, but I just can't stand to see our poor mother worry over him. The unfaltering grin he wore made me believe otherwise, but I told him that without proof of relation to the deceased, he couldn't view the body. I advised that he come back with a photo ID and identification for the body, perhaps a police report, and then we could do a proper ID on the John Doe. He smiled the whole time, but I didn't really trust that grin. He had expected to just waltz in and do whatever he meant to do, probably snap some picture for a local tabloid or something. While the morgue was short-staffed for the holidays, but I wasn't about to play along. I'm sorry, he said. I should have come better prepared. I'll go home and see what I can scrounge up. He left and I figured I'd never see him again. I wish that had been the case. The strange man came in at around noon, but as I settled in to kill the second half of my day, something pinged on my camera around back. The morgue in our town isn't huge, a dozen pool drawers of which about half are usually occupied, a freezer for long-term storage that holds about three or four cadavers at any given time, and three autopsy tables. Most of our business comes in through the rear, ambulances or hearses from the local funeral homes, and the back door camera has a motion sensor. So, I can tell which one of them pulls up to pick up or drop off. I wheeled over to the little CCTV monitor near the end of my desk and pushed the silence button as I checked the feed. I had expected to find an ambulance with another drop off, but instead, I was greeted by an empty alley on the grainy monitor. The cameras were old, the feed full of snow and off color pictures, but with daylight, still holding sway it was easy to see that nothing was out back but the dumpster we used for garbage i figured it must have been a bird or something and went back to playing on my phone when it chirped again i glanced over just in time to see a shadow step out of frame a shadow with a cape or maybe a long cloak i leaned in and looked at the grainy feed trying to see where the shadow had gone. But there was nothing. Whatever had set the camera off had stepped out of sight, and I wondered if it might be a bum or something. We did occasionally get vagrants in the alley, but most of them weren't in a big hurry to hang out around the morgue. Most of them knew that lingering in the pull-in lane would get you yelled at by emergency services and the rest were just afraid of what they might catch from the dumpster, since it was clearly where we disposed of the spare bodies. Seeing the shadow, however, made me think about our mysterious visitor, and I clicked around on the camera to the other four views we had. The cold room was clear. The autopsy room was clear. The back hall was clear. The front room was clear, except for me. The movement sensor went off again, scaring the tar out of me. And when I flipped over to the back alley, I saw an ambulance pulling into the narrow alley. I sighed, getting up, as I went to lock the front door and open the back door for them. I hated it when they don't call first, but that's the nature of the business. Ralph was there, the guy who usually drives the bus from St. Michael's, With a couple of car crash victims who had died en route to the hospital. They said the families will be by to pick the bodies up tomorrow. What a Christmas, huh? Sign here. I signed off on his clipboard, and the EMTs loaded the bodies into the freezer drawers in the autopsy room. They were pretty banged up, but I had little doubt that whatever mortuary they sent them to would pick them up together in time for the funeral. It would either be Gladys or McMahon's, if they were locals, and both did excellent work for the price tag. I stuck around to chit-chat with Ralph for a few minutes as he smoked, and as the ambulance rolled out of the alley, I remembered the mysterious shadow and had a look around to see if something was still hanging around. The alley was empty. Other than the dumpster and the trash cans, and there was nothing that could have made the shadows in the first place. I headed back inside, having killed an hour at least, watching them unload a couple of stiffs and return to find a surprise. Two missed calls and a voicemail from a number I wasn't familiar with. The voicemail turned out to be from someone named Candace, and she sounded scared despite the upbeat holiday music playing in the background. I called her back, and she asked me to wait a moment as she had stepped outside. Yes, hi, my name is Candace Guzman. My fiancé never came home last night, and... She sobbed audibly before regaining her composure. I was wondering if maybe you had a John Doe come in recently. I told her we had, telling her about the man who'd been brought in last night, and I heard her make a heart-wrenching sound. As I described him, she said it might be a few days before she could come and identify the body, something about needing someone to watch her children, and ask if we could please hold the body until she could come and have a look. I explained to her that the coroner wouldn't be back until the 26th, and the body would likely go into long-term storage after tonight anyway. She said she would be there on the 26th when it opened and thank me for being so understanding. This is just going to devastate the kids if it's him. They really love Terry so, so much, especially after the hell their real father put them through. She hung up and I remember hoping maybe it wasn't him. Nobody wants to find out that their new stepdad is dead on Christmas. For the rest of the day, I kept catching strange blips on the camera. I would look up from my phone and see odd movements on the hallway cams or quick and agitated motions from the back area cameras. It was like a moth or something was catching the lens. And more than once, I thought about going to have a look. It was like being the night guard on a five-night at Freddy's game and the parallels were beginning to spook me as the day progressed slowly. At four, after glancing up half a dozen times to find nothing, I finally went and searched the back for whatever was making the cameras wig out. The back hallway was clear, the emergency lights casting the linoleum in a sickly green color. The back door was locked, the shadows gathering in the back alley as I looked through the back window. The cold storage door was locked, but I opened it anyway and took a peek inside, finding nothing but closed drawers and a lot of condensation. My last stop was the short-stay room, and I found the door was locked as I opened it to take a peek. All the drawers were pushed in, all the tables were still clean, and nothing seemed to miss. I didn't find any bugs or wildlife that had gotten in when the back door was open and was forced to wait the last hour and a half of my shift. Fifteen minutes later, I look up and nearly screamed at what I saw on the monitor. The monitor in the autopsy room had detected movement, and I looked up to find a familiar man standing over one of the drawers. The body of our John Doe was lying placidly under his watchful eye and he reached out to stroke the cheek almost tenderly. I watched as he looked up and into the camera as if I could see him. He grinned, raising his hand to wave at me. And that's when I brought my shaky hand down on the big red button that locked the door between the back room and the front area. I never had to use it, but I had heard it was installed after some weirdos tried to sneak into the morgue. The maglocks would keep just about anyone without superhuman strength from getting back there, and they would engage the locks on the back door as well. I called the police, and I must have sounded pretty frantic because they came immediately. The guy had finished whatever business he had with the John Doe and moved out of range of the cameras. I hadn't seen him for close to 10 minutes by the time the police got there, and the three uniformed officers told me to stay back as they went through the door once I disengaged the button. They told me to re-engage it after they had gone through, and the 15 minutes I stood there waiting for them to come back was agonizing. I could just imagine this guy getting the jump on them and somehow getting back out to me. He was weird enough to want to mess around with dead bodies. I shuddered to think what he would do to me and the police officers if given the opportunity. When someone knocked three times on the door to the morgue hallway, I jumped and quavered out to ask who was there. It's Officer Mathers, ma'am. We are ready to come out now. I asked if they had found the man, and they said I must have been seeing things because there was no one back there. I opened the door after looking through the little window to verify who they were, and all three were more than happy to take me through each room and show me that there was no one there. I told them about the man who had come in earlier, the creepy guy who was wondering about the John Doe we had, and they took the description. Despite this, I don't think they took me seriously. They said if I saw him again to give them a call, but that they had found no signs of forced entry and no signs of anyone having been back there at all. Even the drawer that you reported open was closed, nothing disturbed or out of place, last as far as we could tell, Officer Mathers added. Luckily for me, my relief came in about that time because I don't think I could have stood to be there for another second. I told them what had happened, even called my boss to tell them what had happened, and went home to try and relax and enjoy my Christmas Eve. I'd like to say that that was the end of it, but the real horror was to come the next day. I was woken up at about 8 o'clock the next morning by a phone call from the police. They were sending a car to come pick me up from my apartment and they had some questions they needed answered right away. The officer on the phone was being extremely cagey, and if he hadn't started out by giving me his badge number, I would have probably thought it was a crank call. He assured me that it was very serious and that if I didn't agree to come down to the station I might find myself compelled to do so. So I got dressed and was indeed picked up by a police car and taking to the local precinct. I was put into a meeting room with Detective Ruckers and asked about the nature of my call to the police the day before. I told him the truth. I told him I had seen someone in the morgue area and called the police after looking down the building. Police had come, but they hadn't found anything. I suspected that it was the weirdo who had come in earlier that day, and I gave the detective his description. The detective was very interested in the details of the weird guy I'd seen, since now the case of the John Doe had taken a very strange turn. "'How could that be?' I asked. "'He's been locked in a drawer since they brought him in yesterday.' Detective Rutgers gave me a look that told me he was trying not to give me more information than I needed. But before leaving, he finally decided to throw me a bone." I'm afraid someone took him at some point yesterday and did something pretty terrible with him. I asked him what happened. My curiosity peaked, but he said he couldn't share details of an ongoing investigation with someone who might be involved. We'll call you if we have any more questions, but I should tell you that you are a person of interest and probably shouldn't leave town for the next few days. I walked out of the precinct, utterly confused. What in the hell happened? Turned out, I wouldn't have to wait very long for answers. The police were tight-lipped about the incident, but the news was less vague about the details. It appeared that on December 25th, at around four in the morning, someone had broken into the Guzman home. Mrs. Guzman, the woman I had talked to the day before, had called the police and went to lock herself in her children's bedroom with them. She had no sooner left her bedroom than she heard the screams of her children from the living room. She was afraid that the intruder had done something to them and went charging into the living room to save them. What she found were her children cowering before the Christmas tree and the body of her fiancé, Terry Russell, sitting in the armchair he had loved so much in life. Police had arrived, but it appeared that no one had forced their way in at all. The police said it looked like Mr. Russell had simply fallen out of the sky into his favorite armchair just to give his family the worst Christmas surprise of their life. They interviewed Mrs. Guzman, and she told the reporter that her husband had been responsible for these things. It was pretty clear that the police and the reporter had been trying to get her off camera, but... Mrs. Guzman was adamant that these facts had to be disseminated. I wondered why they hadn't cut the interview, but I suppose it made the story even more sensational when you thought about it. A distraught fiancé talking about her vindictive ex-husband after finding the body of her new love in her home on Christmas morning probably boosted their ratings for the whole year. It was Martinez, I know it, He left my terry there for me to find, to remind me not to think I was safe. You have to protect me. Someone has to find him. As long as he's out there, this will never stop. He filled him with presents, like some strange Santa Claus sack. He filled him up after he killed him and left him there for me to find. He left him there. He left him there. He left him there. After that... I had to have answers. We didn't get the body of Terry Russell when it was released by the investigators. They were probably afraid he would lose it again. I never got a chance to look at the report of what had been done to him, but I wasn't without means. A friend of mine, who works for the police department in my town, agreed to have drinks with me. After some pleasantries, he told me all the details that were too gory for TV. He told me how the body had been stuffed with cheap gifts, that they were wrapped in what appeared to be the divorce papers Mrs. Guzman had sent to her ex-husband. Most of us knew Mrs. Guzman already. We've been called out by the neighbors quite a few times for, well, checks or domestic violent claims. She's never implicated Mr. Guzman, but the bruises were found on her, and the kids made it pretty clear that the man had a temper. I asked my friend about Mr. Godsman about what he looked like and how he seemed to them. And he had a lot more to say about the woman's husband than the woman. The guy was a kook. He always dressed like some kind of wizard with fancy clothes and fancy capes and always had this look about him. I don't know how to describe it if you've ever seen it, but I deal with guys who make a lot of outrageous claims about What they can do and can't do. You deal with guys all the time. They tell you they're going to kill you, where you stand, or how they're going to break both your arms and snap your neck the second you lay a hand on them. Most of the guys are full of crap, but Martinez Guzman was the first guy I believed could actually do it. He wasn't a huge guy, but the look in his eyes made me think he was capable of violence. And that maybe he was capable of other things too. He told me that Martina Guzman had been nowhere to be found when they arrived, if he had ever been there to start with. But the body of Terry Russell had been seated in the chair, just as Mrs. Guzman had said it would be. There was no sign of forced entry, just like it said on the news, and it was like he had just dropped out of the sky right into the chair. We searched the house first, not figuring her fiancé was going anywhere, but once we got back to the living room, we saw something out of place. There were things on the floor in front of him, things wrapped in paper that was discolored. They just kept falling to the floor as we came back into the living room, and we didn't really understand what they were until we came around the chair. It was. He paused for a moment and took a long pull off his drink. It was the worst things I've ever seen. His belly had just opened up as if someone had drawn a zipper. And there were all these little paper packages laying on the ground. They were cheap things, little toys and costume jewelry and... Uh, they were just all wrapped up in legal papers. We didn't even know they were divorce papers until we got them back to have them analyzed. That was when we started looking at Mr. Martinez. The papers were from a packet his wife's lawyer had mailed to them. And they weren't just something, just anyone could have gotten a hold of. It was like the son of a bitch had wrapped up all these presents for them to open and then just put them in her fiancé. Then he had turned the man loose to just walk home and deliver them. I asked him how the presents had gotten in there since he hadn't even autopsied the man and he gave me this strangely mystic look. Uh, That's the thing. There were no cuts on the man. There were no incisions, no stitches, no staples. There was nothing. It was as if things had just appeared inside him fully wrapped and that he had taken them home for delivery. He took another long drink, and when he set the glass down, he raised his hand at the barkeep to get another one. I've seen some weird shit on the force, you remember that alligator we found in the sewer and those girls that went missing who just randomly appeared in the cornfield last year? But this is beyond even me. I don't understand it. But I believe Mrs. Guzman when she tells me that her husband is some kind of magic man. She talked about it constantly when she was at the station. She talked about how she and her kids needed protection, how they needed to disappear, how they needed to go somewhere Martinez would never find them. She was adamant about it, and most of the guys at the station thought she was nuts. Looking at that and remembering the way his eyes looked, anytime we would interview him, I don't think she was crazy. I think she got mixed up with something bad, And I think if we don't make her disappear, then we'll find her and those kids dead someday. He finished his drink in one long slurp and then excused himself, saying he needed to get some air. That was a couple of weeks ago, and the media has finally forgotten about the strange present Mrs. Guzman and her children were delivered Christmas morning. They may have, but I have not. There's nothing I can do about it except give out the description of Martinez Guzman and hope that if anyone sees him, they'll know to stay away from him. He's a man in his early 40s, Hispanic, with short dark hair, and the most intense emerald eyes I have ever seen. He was wearing strange clothes, like a costume from a Harry Potter movie, and when we spoke, it felt like spiders running up my spine— I don't recommend that you approach him. I don't recommend that you attempt to apprehend him. And for the love of God, I do not recommend that you get to know him at all. As Mrs. Guzman could attest, his presents are far from what's on anyone's Christmas list. And that, dear listeners, brings a close to these horrific Christmas stories. I'd like to thank the reform members of the channel: Inner Scare Wifey, Haller's Mom, Tina Mead, Seven, Buzz Crispin, Tammy Slayton, CAG, Denise S, Samantha Place, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Norman D W, Christy Elias, Cindy Cleveland, and Patty's niece. If you are asleep, I hope Slumberland is treating you comfortably. If you are awake, I hope you've enjoyed these horrific Christmas tales. Until next time, please take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a great morning, a great afternoon, or a great evening. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Peace, love, and light to you all.